and welcome to the Travel Diaries podcast. I'm Holly Rubenstein. I'm a travel and entertainment journalist. And here each week, I'll be speaking to a very special guest about their adventures around the world and the travel experiences and destinations that have shaped their lives. Recording today's episode was a real pinch myself moment. The podcast's first dame, I'm joined today by Dame Dr. Jane Goodall, the legendary primatologist and anthropologist known for her groundbreaking research of wild chimpanzees. When Jane moved from England to Gombe in Tanzania at the age of just 24, virtually nothing was known about chimpanzees in the wild. Her findings, in particular observing them using tools to get food, changed our understanding of animal behaviour and the natural world and propelled Jane to international fame. And what makes this even more astounding is that at the time she had no formal scientific qualifications. And it's still running today. The study is the world's longest running continuous wildlife research project. Jane has since been named a United Nations Messenger of Peace and was invested as a dame of the British Empire. I spoke to Jane via Zoom a couple of weeks ago, so as with all these virtual chats, I do apologise for any sound glitches you hear along the way. I must say I'm really looking forward to interviewing my guests in person again. But I'm very grateful to have been able to connect with so many great people during these unprecedented times. Anyway, let's get started and dive deep into the wilds of Africa. Here are the travel diaries of Dr. Jane Goodall. Dr. Jane Goodall, welcome to The Travel Diaries. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? Slightly weary because I have so many of these Zooms and Skypes and video messages. It doesn't stop. So I'm way busier than I used to be when I was traveling 300 days a year around the world lecturing. Really? So you'd be very in demand during this lockdown period, I'm sure. From all over the world. And the only good thing about it is I've reached hundreds of thousands of people in many different countries. That's fantastic. And as you say, you were traveling pre-COVID 300 days of every year. So travel must be immensely important to you. Well, it's um, only important as a method of getting from A to B. And people say, you must love traveling. I do not love traveling because, you know, who could love waiting in lines at airports, being frisked, you know, getting up early, arriving late. Um, No, I don't like the traveling part, but it's the only way I could do my lectures. Yes, yes, exactly. If it's just work, 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 it's just not something you could possibly enjoy. (laughs) Yeah, you're working so hard still, aren't you? I mean, this is an activism that started back in the mid 80s. And really, you've not really stopped since then, have you? I haven't stopped at all. Just two weeks here and three weeks there. Twice, um, well, I had one two-week gap each year, um, one three-week gap each year, and then a few of ten days, but mostly it was just two days, three days. And then in between, I would be back here where I am now in Bournemouth, which is the house I grew up in, where luckily I was when lockdown was imposed. Mm, well, speaking of your childhood home then, yes. that sounds like a good time to start your travel diaries because chapter one is your earliest childhood travel memory. Well, if you mean actual travelling, it was a car journey. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I remember we went from Bournemouth to Cornwall in my uncle's car And all I remember about it is that we went through, I can remember the country, I can remember stopping for a picnic, and I can remember seeing, I was so excited to see a haystack. You know, in those days we had proper haystacks, (laughs) and it was quite far away, and every time we passed one, I wanted to go and and collect one. I didn't realize how big they were. So finally, my uncle stopped the car and he said to mom, he said, oh, take her. And so we trudged across the fields and I got to the haystack and I pulled out one straw and burst into tears. (laughs) (laughs) And it was from such a young age, you've said, that you dreamed of living in the African bush among animals. So how did that dream come about? Because when I was growing up, it was wartime. There was no television, hadn't been invented. None of the modern gadgets that people communicate with today. So it was just 
first of all, I loved animals from the time I was born. So I wanted to spend an awful lot of time out in the garden and on the cliffs above the sea. But um, then we learned through books, 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 books. And I loved books. I loved reading. Mm -hmm. And I read Dr. Doolittle, the um, voyages of Dr. Doolittle, the story of Dr. Doolittle. Mm -hmm. I wanted to learn animal language. And then I read Tarzan, Tarzan of the Apes, when I was 10. And I think it was those two books that uh, made me dream. And I announced, when I grow up, I'm going to go to Africa and live with wild animals and write books about them. And everybody laughed except my mother. She said, well, if you really want to do this, you're going to have to work awfully hard, take advantage of every opportunity. And then maybe if you don't give up, you'll find a way. And that you did, despite many obstacles, not having any scientific qualifications at the time and your gender in what was obviously a male-dominated field. By your mid-20s, you were living in Africa, living in the Tanzanian jungle. So for any of our listeners who don't know, can you tell us a bit about your assignment that led you there, how you ended up living and working there? Okay, well, first of all, I never lost my side of my dream. I left school Um, Did super well, but no money for university. Did a boring old secretarial course. Opportunity came when a school friend invited me to Kenya for a holiday on her parents' farm. And I had to save up money working as a waitress because my secretarial job in London, you couldn't save money. And at home, of course, I didn't have to pay rent. And finally got enough money. I think it took five months or something. And arrived in Kenya, stayed with my friend, and somebody said, if you're interested in animals, you should meet Dr. Lewis Leakey, famous paleontologist. Mm. And so I went to see him. He was curator of the Natural History Museum. And I think he was impressed by how much I knew about African animals because I'd read every single book I could find. (laughs) And he gave me this amazing opportunity to go and live with and learn from not just any animal, but the one most like us, the chimpanzee. I would have studied any animal, but he chose chimpanzees. Mm. And I wonder if I then might be able to guess what might be the first place that you fell in love with, chapter two. Is that Gombe? Gombe of then. Well, there were two, you know, Leakey took me on one of his expeditions onto the Serengeti Plains searching for fossils, a place now very famous called Alderby Gorge. And as I hadn't been long out from England and on the Serengeti, there were no people, no tourists back then, but all the animals. And one evening uh, I met a young male lion. One evening it was a rhino. And, you know, that was the Africa of my dreams. So Probably, if I'm honest, I would say that was the first place I really fell in love with. Mm -hmm. But then, of course, Gombe, when I got there, I mean, it's the rainforest, and I've always loved woods and forests. And very soon, Gombe had found a very deep place in my heart because it was just me and the forest and the chimpanzees, and it was a magical time in my life, magical was it everything that you dreamed of as a child when you were sitting up in the trees in your garden in Bournemouth and picturing what you were reading about in these books? Well, the, you know, the, <clears throat> what was more like my childhood dream was actually was Alderby and the, the lions and the rhinos and things. And when I got to Gombe, you know, for, for five months, the chimpanzees ran away from me. They'd never seen a white ape before. <laughs> and as I only had money for six months, and I knew if I didn't, you know, gain their trust, um, it would be the end. So the early days were pretty frustrating. It was later, uh, during the second and third year, when all the chimpanzees accepted me, and I got to know them intimately as individuals. Then then it was truly, truly magical. And it was even better than anything I dreamt of as a child. Mm. The thrill of those early physical interactions that we've seen footage of when they're touching you on the nose and you were tickling them, those times when you were able to interact with them physically, how do you reflect on those memories? Well, when I watched the geographic documentary that's called Jane, and I saw that early footage. That moved me 
more more than any other documentary. There've been many, but that one was so. You know, it showed material that doesn't go into most most films, mm. and it took me right right back into my twenty six year old skin, and it was so nostalgic because those chimpanzees, you know, I I knew them so well, and they were so familiar, and I I I loved them. David Greybeard and Melissa and Old Flo and Mike and and Mr. McGregor. I mean, they were such amazing characters and it was so wonderful to be able to get to know them in that way and you know of course now we know we mustn't touch them they can catch our diseases we can catch theirs but back then there were basically i think there were two other field studies in africa one was gorillas and one was baboons and nobody had studied chimpanzees and putting out bananas was accepted by everybody it was very very different it was you know the, the very beginning of these kind of studies in the field and it was magic and of course at that time it was you who discovered the extent of their similarities to us as humans i mean that was you who found this out yes i mean david graybeard showing me that they could use and make tools thought to be a uniquely human characteristics and then learning how their non-verbal communication kissing embracing holding hands patting one another swaggering you know throwing rocks and you can tell what that means without knowing anything about chimps because we do it too it's the same and then the horror of the fact that they have a dark brutal side and are capable of a kind of war and killing each other but also love compassion and altruism so did the similarities between us and them come as a shock or was that something that you'd anticipated no i anticipated you know there were a few people had watched chimps in zoos and quite clearly you can see even in a in a chimpanzee in a zoo you can see the resemblances to humans and there've been one study of a group a captive group in actually in the canary islands uh, by an austrian i think he was austrian um psychologist and the other scientists back then poo-pooed what he said they said oh well the, those chimpanzees only behave like humans and they only use tools because their in captivity and human behavior has rubbed off on them but i loved his books and i didn't believe that his book rather i didn't believe that and so it didn't absolutely surprise me but i knew that it would surprise the scientific world so it was very exciting yeah, I, can, i can absolutely imagine you mentioned zoos having spent so much time with animals who are so free How do you feel about zoos? Because they're still pretty commonplace. Well, there are some zoos. Um, <clears throat> all zoos have got better. Well, I wouldn't say all, but in the um, in the UK and most of Europe and America, Canada, zoos have got, I mean, so so much better. So a really good zoo, which has enough money to make proper enclosures, big ones, uh, right social group keepers who understand and care about the animals and understand their behavior zoos that uh, put a lot of money into conservation of the animals in the wild and actually send their keepers out to take part in conservation work and i know so many people who've told me that their love of animals and their desire to protect them came because they went to a zoo and looked into a chimpanzee or a gorilla or an elephant's eyes So zoos play a very important role but the bad zoos of which there are still too many need to be closed but you know way back when I first got back from Gombe and the London zoo was appalling and most zoos were pretty bad uh, that's when I started a program which is now accepted everywhere of enrichment because one of the biggest problems the animals face is boredom but nothing mm -hmm. to do And in those days with the little square cement cages, it was dreadful. So I invented uh, tasks for them to perform to get their food so that they didn't just sit. And it worked so well, so very well. Now it's everywhere, all zoos. And was that work part of your institute and the Roots and Shoots programs? It 
wasn't any such thing back then. Just you. It was just yeah. me. The Institute didn't start till 1977, and Roots and Shoots didn't start till 1991. And tell me a bit about how the momentum then built from it being just you to then growing so exponentially into your institutes and the amazing work that they're doing around the world. Well, um, I was initially, I had to get grants every year for me to carry on with my work. And after I finally got my PhD, um, I was able to build up a little research station. And that, of course, needed more money, more grants. And that was that was very hard work. And some friends in California said that they would create an institution that would help to raise money and, and, and not for profit so that people in America could put money in and get tax write-offs. That was that was how it started. Mm-hmm. That was in 1977. And, you know, gradually that grew and we could reach more people and get more money. And then, I don't know, other countries wanted their own Jane Goodall Institutes. First of all, of course, uh, we wanted one in the UK, which is my country. And then we needed one in Tanzania, not for profit in Tanzania, where the chimps are. And it just, uh, it grew. And then <clears throat> Roots and Shoots began um, when I was meeting so many young people who'd lost hope in the future because of what we've done to the planet. And they told me that we'd compromised their future and there was nothing they could do. Well, we have compromised their future. We've actually been stealing it. and. But I didn't believe there was nothing that could be done about it. And I still believe we have a window of time. So um, Roots and Shoots began to help young people understand, and this is the main sort of motto of Roots and Shoots, every individual has a role to play, every individual matters, every individual makes an impact on the planet every single day. And unless we're living in dire poverty, we have the luxury of choosing what sort of impact we make. Even the very poor can choose to some extent. So Roots and Shoots is a program where young people can choose uh, themselves what they do, but between them they must choose one project to help people, one to help animals, one to help the environment, because everything's interrelated. Mm, Amazing. So... Let's pause there and move on to chapter three of your travel diaries. And that is a place where you learned the most about yourself. I think probably, you know, as I say, I grew up during World War II. And my mother, A, she'd been very extraordinary in supporting my desire to go to Africa when everybody else laughed. But I think it was pretty amazing that when my aunt and uncle moved out to Germany after the war, just after the war, um, he was in the section, the British section, because Germany was divided up into th- four sections, uh, uh, overseen by, by um, let's see, America did one, the US, uh, we did one, Belgium did one, and I think the other was French. Mm-hmm. And they wrote to mum and said, we found a family who really want somebody to teach the children English. Most mothers wouldn't have let me go. I mean, in the war, I I don't know if you can imagine it, but just to hear the sound of a German voice and Hitler and all the the newsreels that we saw Mm. and the Holocaust victims that we saw after the war. I mean, it was a place of horror. But mum wanted me to understand that Nazi Germany and Hitler wasn't the German people. And I think it was amazing that she let me go. So while I was there, I think I, I think I learned a lot about myself and um, thinking about, you know, how the ordinary people in Germany were the same as I was and learning to think a different way mm. than I had during the war. So I think that, you know, that taught me, that taught me an awful lot. We're all similar. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, when I first went to Africa, it was by boat because there weren't planes going back and forth then or just a few that you couldn't possibly afford. And the boat went all the way around Cape Town. The Suez Canal was closed during a war. So the first African 
continent and um, country on which I set foot was South Africa in Cape Town. Right. And it was so exciting. There I was in Africa at last, my dream coming true. But then the boat was there for two days while it restocked. And some friends of my, of my grandmother uh, said that they'd look after me for two days and take me around and show me sights. And I kept seeing this writing on the backs of benches in the parks and the doors to the restaurants and everywhere, Slechts Blanc. And I said, well, in Afrikaans, I said, what does that mean? White people only. And I was so shocked. My grandfather was a congregational minister. I hadn't grown up to judge people by the color of their skin. And I couldn't wait to leave Cape Town. And so I think I learned a lot about myself there, that, mm. you know, that this was kind of ingrained in me without anybody teaching me the horror of apartheid. Yeah. And that's just such a different experience to your time in Gombe, isn't it? I mean, I recall the footage of your son learning Swahili fluently from a young age, from the locals, and just being so immersed in the life there. Yes, well, you know, I don't think I learned so much about myself there because that was my dream. So I'd always known that, Jane. Um, How about aloneness? Because being on your own seemed to have been a part of your life there at the start. It was, and I'd always loved being alone. You know, when I was a child living here in this house, uh, there was my favorite tree in the garden. I loved beach so much. I wrote out a will for my grandmother to sign, <laughs> leaving it to me. And I used to spend hours up in the top of beach and then another tall fir tree. I mean, literally hours. I would take books up there and I'd be alone with the birds and the rustling wind. So, and, and I used to spend ages with my dog out on the cliffs alone. So, I'd always loved being alone, and being alone is very different from being lonely. Yes. So you're more likely to be lonely in a city surrounded by people you don't know than out in the natural world where you've got the birds and the monkeys and the insects and and the trees. I mean, to me, trees are like people. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I have to say that during this time, during lockdown, being among the trees has been... Very soothing. Yeah. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers? 
just like I do. Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. So let's take a moment to travel from the heart of Africa to the heart of Scotland. High on so many people's lists this summer. Beautiful, accessible, a great spot for a staycation. And if you're looking to up the ante and make it extra special, then there's no better place to stay than Glen Eagles. You probably heard of it. It's a global icon known as the glorious playground because there's just so much to do there. From country pursuits, picnics on the moor, Michelin star dining, an award-winning spa, and of course, plenty of golfing, all in such spectacular surroundings. It's one of those places that has an intangibly special feeling whatever time of the year that you visit. I'm actually planning a romantic weekend away there in the autumn when there are whiskey tastings by the fire and the trees change to reds and oranges and the landscape takes on a whole new feel. I just can't wait. So if you're tempted to book your own authentic Scottish experience, then head over to gleneagles.com. Now, Let's return to Dr. Jane. I'm sure you've been asked this many times, but do you prefer spending time with animals over humans? It depends. It depends on the animal and the human. I mean, there's some, <laughs> yeah. you know, some animals I much prefer over some humans and some humans I much prefer over some animals. So it just depends. How about when you were out there? Did the chimps offer you the same feeling of relationships, of of relating that could in any way compare? No, it, it, it didn't compare. I've spent a lot of time trying to think, you know, what, what the relationship actually was. And I don't have a word for it. I mean, they were, I don't think of them as animals. I think of them as other beings. They're not like family, although I knew them like family. Um, they're not like friends, human friends, but they're, it, it, there isn't, I've never found a way of describing really my relationship with them in terms that people could understand. Mm. It was just something intangibly magical. Intangibly magical. But I mean, when you come to real closeness with animals, then every time I'm going for a dog, dogs can be your best friend. Dogs offer you unconditional love and loyalty. And they're just, I mean, I just find dogs absolutely, I love them. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) The chimpanzees, I don't love in the same way at all. I respect them. I admire them. I like some of them. I dislike Mm -hmm. others. You know, it's such personalities. And there have just been a few dogs I don't like, but by and large, I love dogs. You were there to understand the relationship between chimp behavior and human behavior. So what was the most important thing that they taught you? Well, I, I found that in chimp society, like human society, you get good mothers and bad mothers. Mm-hmm. I learned from the years of watching the, uh, the chimpanzee families that the best mothers are those just like my mother who support their offspring uh, and even if they're a subordinate female and their child gets into a squabble with the child of a more dominant female, the good mother will run in to def- defend her child and rescue her child, even though it's pretty obvious she's going to get beaten up by the mother of the other child. So it, looking back over our 60 years of records, it's pretty clear that the offspring of the supportive mothers are uh, do better mm. as they grow up and they the males tend to reach a higher rank and probably sire more offspring and that's now being about to be proved mm. and the females make better and more successful mothers and i think that the first couple of years of life in in uh, the human family 
are incredibly important for a human child. It doesn't have to be the biological mother, but the child needs to be surrounded by two or three adults who are consistently there to support that child. And that gives the child a feeling of security. Mm. So people said to me when I was raising my son, oh, he's going to be so dependent on you, you know, because I wasn't away from him for a single night until he was three. Mm. And um, I breastfed him till he was one and he slept in the bed. And uh, I was with him. Well, I was with the chimps half the day and half the day with him. But, of course, he hasn't grown up to be clinging and dependent. He's very independent, as I had known he would be because the chimps were. How does he, when you speak about it, reflect on his time growing up there? Well, he just loved the lake and fishing and he didn't like the chimps at all. I know, not surprised. Really? He, he didn't like the no, chimps? No, because chimps have been known to um, kill and eat human babies, just like humans kill and eat chimpanzees. No difference, really, is there? Yeah, we have, we're much more dangerous than they yeah, are. Yeah, of course. Think what we do to each other. Think of what we do to the animal world. Think of our intensive farms. And once, you know, when I went to Cambridge, the professors, or not all of them, but most of them, told me that I shouldn't have given the chimpanzees names. They should have had numbers. And I couldn't talk about their personalities, their minds, or their emotions because they said those <coughs> are unique to us. Well, my dog... As a child, Rusty had taught me that wasn't true. And chimpanzees, luckily, are so like us biologically that we share 98.6% of our DNA with them. So along with that information, plus the, the writing, my writing about their behavior, my observations, mm -hmm. and Hugo van Lauer, my photographer, filmmaker, husband, his film, science had to move away from that reductionist way of thinking. And now, you know, we know about the intelligence of pigs. We know about the intelligence of the octopus. We know how intelligent birds can be. Yeah. And it's a whole new field for students. It's very exciting. And I credit the chimpanzees with helping me to change scientific attitude. And gradually this is spilling over, especially through roots and shoots into the population at large. So when you think, if you eat meat and you buy meat from one of these factory farms, A, the cruelty, B, the terrible conditions, C, the unbelievably bad impact on the environment, and D, every single one of those tortured animals is an individual mm. with its own life and its own um, personality and emotions then you start thinking differently. Oh, goodness. Yeah. So so at what age did you come to that conclusion? Were you a vegetarian from a young age? Oh, no. Well, we sort of grew up eating meat, but not much. I mean, in the war, we had one tiny joint a week and that had to last. You know, yeah, so different times. It's gluttony for meat that's growing up around the world. So I never ate much meat. Um but I never knew about factory farms because we didn't have them in the UK when I went to Gombe. When I got back from Gombe, I think it was uh, the, the, uh, the, the late 60s, something like that, mid I can't remember. And I read Peter Singer's book called Animal Liberation, which talked about factory farms. I was utterly shocked. I, I, I couldn't believe it. Mm. Uh, pictures of the pigs and the, and the cows and how they were treated as objects without any feelings and so the next time I saw meat on my plate I thought this symbolizes fear pain death the last time I ever ate meat mm, yeah something for all of us to reflect on so over the last few years there's been a really rapid growth in luxury wildlife travel yeah. countries like Rwanda come to mind with the gorillas a prime example where has really impressed you well you you just need to check out the safari company that you decide to go with and their record because more and more of the companies are making sure that some of the proceeds go to local people um and and 
help their clients to actually see how local people live. And there's, there's a big difference in the different uh, safari companies. So, you know, anywhere you go with a good company is going to help. Uh, it's, first of all, it brings foreign exchange in, which makes the central government happy. Then it can provide uh, employment for local people, you know, those who are in their hotels or the safari camps. And um, it also gives people an opportunity to see wildlife. And once they've seen it, experienced it in the right way, they're going to want to help. Mm. So that's one of the downsides of the pandemic. Tourism has virtually stopped. And that's meant that national parks, for example, can't pale their rangers. And so poaching has gone way up in many places, partly local people who've lost their jobs and are starving. They want to go and shoot something to eat it. And partly because there's less, fewer rangers. And so the international cartels who are trafficking animals uh, who are the real villains in the piece, they're coming in with greater freedom for elephant tusks, rhino horns and so on. It's devastating, isn't it? Yes. What can be done? I mean, we just have to hope that we can begin to travel again and choose wisely as to where we go and how we can support yeah. with our tourist yes, pounds? Yes, that's right. And there's just been a big conference of the different rangers and people wanting to support the rangers and, you know, some wealthy people can help to keep the ranger force uh, employed even during the, 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 the time when there's fewer tourists. And so that's one of the things that's happening. Mm -hmm. Let's move on now to Chapter 4, which is your all-time favourite destination. Well, you know, it's almost impossible. I mean, my favourite memories are Gombe in the old days. No, no question. So when you say Gombe in the old days, what's it like now? How has it changed? Uh, well, right now there aren't any tourists, but tourists were coming in. Uh, there's new rules and regulations. You're not supposed to go too near the chimps. You're supposed to wear a mask. I mean, it's a totally different relationship. Mm. Um, I still love going to Gombe. Um, but what I love most when I'm in Gombe is to be off on my own in the forest with or without the chimps. And being now 86, I mean, I consider myself pretty jolly fit, <laughs> but I'm not going to climb up to the tops of the hills anymore like I used to. And so if the chimps are down low where I can go, there's usually tourists there. And that, that for me is, it's not the same. No. So how about now? What are your other favorite places to visit? Well, I love going to Nebraska at the time of the Sandhill Cranes migration oh. because you get millions of birds coming in to roost on the Platte River. And as they fly in against the, and the glorious sunsets there in, um, in Nebraska, and it's like it's very a feeling of old. I mean, the, the cranes are very ancient birds. And my friend, the photographer, Tom Mangelson, has a cabin. And every year some of us go uh, to the cabin for about a week and just just enjoy this this ancient spectacle of these sandhill cranes and the and the snow geese and other water birds coming in in their thousands and thousands onto the great platte river that's a wonderful place to go but then any rainforest i was just in a an amazingly beautiful rainforest in malaysia and, you know, I've been lucky enough to spend time, not much, but, but time, in many, many beautiful places around the world. So it's difficult for me to pick mm. on one special place now, really. Of course, it's such a tough decision for all my guests, actually. So let's move on to Chapter 5. That is your hidden gem, a place that you love that my listeners might not know that much about. Yes, a place where your listeners wouldn't know and which may not be there much longer, sadly. But it's a hidden spot in Tanzania, kind of in the middle of nowhere, yeah. and a long trip in a Land Rover. And there's a secret, we call it the hippo pool. There's a little trickle of water coming down a rocky face. And somehow it gathers up in, a, in this series of pools, there are three of them. And they're surrounded by old trees. 
and it moves down into a wetland. And so here in the middle of, I, I don't know, sort of nothing, is a little ecosystem with wildlife. When I was there, there were elephants, there were um, there were hyenas, there were lions, and the hippos. Uh, the hippos are very special because there's who we call a hippo whisperer. And in this little village nearby, one person is appointed as a guardian of the hippos. It dates way back. And it's usually from father to son, father to son. And I went, I was by the pool and this Yahaya came and he started talking to the hippos. The hippos had just been doing hippo things. And when he came and started talking, they all put their heads out Ugh. and they all still and they all listened to him oh, wow it was complete and it's a very beautiful when the evening light comes through the trees the water gleams green and it's very quiet and hushed and um, I've been there twice and once was with two of my grandchildren and it's just an incredibly special place and we have tried to save it but you know it's it's off the beaten track it would cost a lot to get the road repaired. Um, and and also with climate change, I just fear desperately that that little trickle will dry up. But there's a small group of people. Um, my eldest grandson was supposed to be going there to see what was going on, got some money to work with the local people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, with the government, the Tanzanian government, they control everything. And... They want some of the land to develop, to grow, to grow crops and things like that. So the situation is, is very, very difficult. And again, I think it's one of those places that I'll have to keep in my memory. It's called Tendaguru, and uh, it's got one of the best uh, sites for fossil dinosaurs in the whole of Africa. Really? <laughs> right there near it, yes. Um, and there was a lot of interest in it. We did a film. If people watch a film called Jane's Journey, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is I, I think it's on Netflix. I'm not sure. Um, there's a beautiful sequence of the hippo pool, really beautiful. Oh, I have to check that out definitely. So, in contrast, then chapter six is your worst travel experience. Where would that be? Well, I remember <clears throat> two or three places in the U.S. that were by stockyards and hog farms, and um, Certainly in one of them, the wind was in the wrong direction and the stench was, it was, it was just so utterly, utterly shocking. And um, they had to keep all the windows closed and I would never, ever, ever want to go back there. Lubbock, Texas, poor people living there. Um, <laughs> I, I couldn't bear to go back there. But also I don't think I could bear to go back to Auschwitz and see the place where so many millions of Jews were tortured and put to death, the death camp. Mm. Um, it was a very, very moving experience. I knew I had to do it because the photographs of the survivors of the Holocaust at the end of the war, these living skeletons, uh, haunted me and really helped me understand human evil. Mm. I was only 10. And so I always have known I needed to go there and see for myself. And I'm very glad I did, but I wouldn't want to go back. No. And also, you know, I've been in uh, Burundi and Rwanda and Cambodia where all these, you know, we, we said at the end of World War II, never again. But unfortunately, genocide has been happening almost nonstop in different parts of the world ever since. And seeing some of those places... Um, it's pretty shocking. Is that something that's been a feature in your activist work? I think it's underlying a lot of things. And certainly, mm-hmm. you know, one reason why I uh, am so pushing for this, this uh, the values of Roots and Chutes about, you know, being one human family and that that's more important than the colour of skin or a religion or, or uh, you know, uh, because it's so it's so desperate now that we learn to live with each other as well as living with, with nature. And we're just destroying nature 
but we're destroying each other and it just seems that we go on and on doing it and never learning. And so, yes, that is part of what keeps me going and I will fight it as long as I live. Yeah, there's no retirement in the offing from the sounds of it. <laughs> no, and I mean, you know, my, my body will, I mean, right now I'm, I'm not traveling because I can't, but once I can, I will. Um, but the time will come when I can't for different reasons than a lockdown, for physical reasons. As long as my brain continues active, I will go on writing and doing things like talking to you and podcasts and Zooms and Skypes and all the rest of it. Mm, that's wonderful. So when you reflect back on your life's work, so many incredible achievements and changes that you've helped to make, what do you consider to be your greatest legacy? Well, I think there are two. <clears throat> I think one is definitely Roots and Shoots because nothing will stop that now. I mean, it's growing all the time and it's changing lives. Like the number of people have written to me or said to me, you know, joining Roots and Shoots changed my entire life. Um, That's amazing. And so Roots and Shoots is definitely going to be a part of my legacy forever. And the other one, which is just as important, is helping people think differently about animals, that they're not just unfeeling things, that they're sentient beings capable of feeling pain and fear and despair, joy and sorrow, grief, anger, and and um, all the rest of it. And that I, I could only have done with the help of the chimpanzees. So mm -hmm. those two things, I think, yeah. are probably the most important. So we're on to the final chapter of your travel diaries, and that is what is left at the top of your travel bucket list. Well, if you'd asked me this 15 years ago, I could have given you um, probably one or two names, like going to, um, I wanted, I don't know why, but I wanted to go to East Timor. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to go to um, various places, which I know I couldn't go to now because the train is too difficult. So I've crossed them off. You know, I'll never get there. But one place I, I would really not want to but need to go to is Haiti because of the bad the bad rap it's had and how it's been abandoned and mm. how the people have been starving and and hopeless. And on the other side of that mountain range on this little island is the Dominican Republic, which is green and lush and the people are wealthy. It's just horrible. So I need to go there. That's so that's a place I need to go and I keep trying to get there. But you know the next a journey that will be, I don't know, it might be, it could be, I hope it will be, the most meaningful of my entire life is dying. Mm. When you die, it's either nothingness, in which case, well, it's nothingness, but if there is something beyond this life, which I honestly believe for various reasons, then can you think of a more exciting journey than finding out what that is, that something, and where you will go and what will happen? I mean, to me, it's really exciting thought. And I think what we fear isn't um, death so much as dying, is the act of dying. And will, will we die in, in terrible pain? Will we have a dreadful cancer? Mm -hmm. uh, will we become you know, bedridden and a burden on everybody. And that's that's a horrible thing to think about. But actually, death itself, I don't know, I find it completely fascinating to think about. How incredible. So it doesn't frighten you? Not a bit. <sighs> you know, I've had experiences which make me feel pretty sure that there is something beyond this life. Really? We talk about life after death. And I say, well, it's life after life. <laughs> Well, Dr. Jane, those were your travel diaries. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to us today. It's been such an honour. I think my travel diaries are probably very different from anybody else's. They are. They are. But they couldn't have been any more wonderful. So thank you so much. Oh, that was Dr. Jane Goodall. What an honour it was to speak to her. 
You know, I didn't expect that final answer. I wish that I'd asked her what it was that made her feel confident that there's an afterlife out there. If I'm able to find out, I'll let you know. But I really hope you enjoyed that episode. As she said, it's a pretty different one to many of my others, but that's the beauty of travel, isn't it? It shapes everyone's lives in different ways. And I just want to let you know that I decided I really wanted to interview Dr. Jane after I watched the award-winning documentary about her life in Africa called Jane, which is now on Netflix, I just saw. So I can't recommend it enough. If you've enjoyed this interview, then you really must watch it and let me know what you think. And if you want to get involved or find out more about Jane's work, visit janegoodall.org.uk and rootsandshoots.org.uk. That's Roots and Shoots with an N. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, then please do subscribe, rate and review. I'd love to hear from you. And come and find me on Instagram. I'm at Holly Rubenstein. Catch you next time for another episode of The Travel Diaries. Today's episode is supported by Airbnb. It has been a long old winter here in the UK and in between podcast seasons, I'm going to take a little bit of downtime to seek out some warmth. I'm jetting off to the Greek island of Mykonos, visiting some places that have been on my bucket list. And while I'm hopefully soaking up some Mediterranean sun, my home will be hosting guests from all over the world thanks to Airbnb. It's the perfect way to make your travels even more rewarding. Instead of letting your home sit empty while you're off exploring new destinations, why not turn it into a cozy retreat for fellow travellers just like I do? Whether you choose to rent out your entire space or just a spare room, it's up to you. I list my spare bedroom and it's been a fantastic experience, both financially rewarding and a great way to connect with new people. So if you're planning your own summer getaway or any trip for that matter, consider putting your home on Airbnb. It's a fantastic way to earn extra income that can go towards your travel expenses, souvenirs, or even that special treat you've been eyeing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.co.uk forward slash host. Thank you to Airbnb for supporting the Travel Diaries. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.